0: This call is being recorded. Hi, everyone. This is Adam Shadaroff at the Wharton School. Uh, I'm here today with Drew Aldridge of Axtra Strategic Ventures. Uh, Drew, how are you? Very good.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. Drew, we're happy to have you today. Um, so first, maybe you want to just say a few words about yourself, your background, uh, and you know what you work on at uh, Axtra Strategic Ventures.
1: Sure. So uh my my background is is originally in finance I, I worked in structured finance uh back in the great old days of 06 07 08 and then uh worked at my own startup uh from 08 to 10 and then found my way into M&A and i was doing uh kind of large deal uh M&A and strategy at AXA US uh when they had the idea of creating uh or direct investing in startups and as one of the few people inside of an insurance company who had ever kind of started a tech company, they tapped me to help them. And uh, a year and a half later, we we launched uh, the AXA Strategic Ventures Fund, uh, which is uh, a $250 million venture capital fund, independent venture capital fund, with a single limited partner, which is AXA. And just in case, I mean, AXA has a large brand in the rest of the world, but not a huge brand in the U.S. So put some context, AXA is a very large financial services company. They have $1.2 trillion in assets, and they have about 100 million clients in 60-plus countries. So they're uh, a very large insurer asset manager, and they are our single LP. And ASV is, uh, as I mentioned, the $250 million fund, but it's actually split between three distinct VC funds. So I work in a early-stage U.S.-focused b c fund and then we have an early stage european focused one out of paris and then we have a growth fund uh based in london and san francisco
0: awesome and, and to what extent is there like coordination between those those three regions we
1: so it's interesting is we're as a kind of the structure is interesting because we're independent venture capital funds we have our independent uh i c s and we make decisions right. uh kind of In the end, it's independent, but we obviously like to coordinate. We like to get everybody's feedback, so every week we have a a call with everybody on it, all the the investment professionals uh, on the same call to discuss deals. And I think in general, people would – they could do a deal in which multiple parties – of the other funds didn't kind of love it or, or express, expressed objections. But in general, we, we, we like to make sure everybody's aligned on, on the deals we do globally, even though we're, we're independent funds.
0: Awesome. That's really interesting. All right. Well, I think it makes most sense today to talk about insurance. Uh, obviously insure has become a you know, pretty significant buzzword in the past year, lots of investments, lots of, you know, press, I'd love to hear your views, you know, broadly on the space. What are the opportunities, challenges, and you know, what are your biggest industry theses, I guess?
1: Yeah, sure. So, and actually just, I meant to mention this just a second ago, we, insurance is a key focus area for us because of how important it is to our to LP. Uh, but right. we look on a, on a very broad basis, uh, which includes Kind of fintech, more broadly, insurance, right. data, IoT, health, and enterprise software. But, but all that said, it is interesting when we started the fund in the very in February 15, insurance deal flow was a tiny minority of all of the deal flow. We we were getting a lot of fintech, we were getting a lot of uh, health, we were getting a lot of enterprise deals. And after the summer of '15, the mm-hmm. it feels like there's been this incredible growth in uh, kind of month-on-month growth of deal flow in the insurance space, and and that's kind of corroborated with a whole bunch of uh, industry data showing that the, the deals in the insurance space have just just shot up. Um, and uh, I think that's really interesting for the industry. Uh, I think it's interesting for the venture capital industry as well because. There just is not a lot of – insurance wasn't a big driver of venture capitalists. And so there are very few people who kind of have worked in the industry, which I think is, is interesting. The t- time will tell whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think it's quite right. possible there's an industry that is, can get disrupted from total outsiders who take a totally new view on, on the space. I also think there's a world in which actually the winners are ones who deeply try to understand the nuances of this very regulated industry and uh kind of pair up with uh kind of one part outsider, one part insider. I think that that that'll be interesting thing to look back on in a couple of years. Uh but when we so when we think about the insurance space more, more generally, I think it's important to kind of separate out some of the buckets. So when we the most well-funded insurance startup is Oscar, which is a health right. insurance startup based in New York. That is not the, the. What's interesting in this space is that health insurance really has very little overlap with classic insurance, uh, property and right. casualty, uh, life and annuity insurance, and I. I the, the players are all different. The challenges are different. In health insurance, you generally can't underwrite. You know, there's, you, there's um, uh, regulation plays an important role as in all insurance, but in, in health, it's very particular. Right. So I'd say we kind of separate that a little bit because the players are so totally different. Um, right. Uh, but on the in, in the insurance in the kind of property and casualty side, we have seen. A growth in a bunch of areas um distribution is so sales is the mm-hmm. probably one of the hottest areas in the insurance space for i think a bunch of reasons there's the the most important is that's where the money is uh if you uh, kind of if you break an insurance company into its component parts of distribution we call it distribution but sales. Uh, claims administration, um, you know, IT um, risk investments, uh, all those areas. Forty cents of all dollar of all the dollars flowing through the system go to distribution, and all those other areas are much smaller components. In fact, if you look at kind of underwriting profits, you can say it's you know plus or minus ten percent in general across the board in in the. Mainline insurance products, uh, mm-hmm. but for but so so it's a, it's like a small sliver of money, to ten ten cents on the dollar going to, to underwriting profits of actually like you know the, what we think of as insurance, uh, and then and then forty cents on the dollar going to distribution. So it's not surprising that's where a lot of the disruption has started, or a lot of the startups have started there. There's another reason mm-hmm. I think too which is insurance companies understand how to work with new distribution models. They've gone through multiple pivots. Still, lots of insurance companies sell their products through human agents, but lots of them sell online. Lots of them sell on billboards. I'm sure everyone has seen Geico billboards. And right. uh, So the idea of having a new distribution channel is not – not radical It doesn't require massive transformation inside the business the business probably already has people in charge of looking at new distribution models there's probably mm-hmm. systems in place in order to handle new policies coming in from new areas so it it it's the, it's the right area for a lot of a lot of different reasons um and so what we've seen is maybe last year was peak comparison shopping where we had um, a whole bunch of entrants get real traction uh, one of our portfolio companies Policy Genius is doing really well in comparison shopping and uh, online purchasing of life insurance but there's CoverHound and the Zebra in the auto and home uh, there's a actually um, uh, one of your fellow Wharton Whartonites uh, is doing a comparison shopping site in the annuity space called uh, Abaris Abaris Yeah, and so there's there's that area which is kind of the thesis on let's let's turn these products into apple to apple comparison and and pick the best one. Uh, Then this year, those were all founded kind of in the last three, and then in the last eighteen months, there was a whole series of companies founded going after a more branded approach. Sync, be the be don't don't have a whole ton of products on the shelf. Have are have a one branded product that is extremely easy to use, that's that's maybe slightly a custom build that is unique in some way and be what I'm calling like a, a branded digital broker. Be mostly online, heavily branded. We've seen a whole crop of these. There's um, quilt in Boston, there's mm-hmm. Hippo and Lemonade and Ladder Life out in the West Coast. Right. Uh, there's Jetty in New York, and so there's a there's a bunch of these guys, and uh, all have been really well funded, um, you know, 10 million plus in a, in a lot of cases. None of, virtually none of which have launched. Uh, Lemonade just just recently launched, and so there's a there's a whole bunch of um, wait and see going on in the industry where there's a lot of seed stage deals, and now we need to see if they are going to mature into real disruptive forces, or if the kind of industries gravity and, and friction just kind of <laughs> make these guys kind of grow at a at a pace that's more similar to the insurance world than it is to the startup world.
0: Startup world. Yeah. Well I think it's really interesting point you make that, you know, the the sort of start of the new rise of some of these uh more disruptive entrants. Um what do you think insurers? I mean for example we've seen you know, some of those investments have come from reinsurers, for example, who have shown a willingness to work, you know, or invest in some of those companies that you mentioned a few moments ago. How do you think uh traditional insurers will react if or as uh you know startups start to rise in areas outside of you know a distribution model that they can work with?
1: It's a huge. it's a really interesting play uh strategically. The a host of reinsurers there's kind of two big buckets of them. One is the classic reinsurers, the uh, Swiss right. Re and Munich Re. It's, I guess classic right. European reinsurers. Then there's a whole bunch of hedge fund-backed reinsurers that are also really interested in this space. And I think it's it's there's going to be a series of case studies on this, uh, depending on how this all turns out, because the reinsurers are clearly making a play to jump over the primary carrier, so in traditional in the what the way this used to work is the primary carriers, the axes of the world would sell the products, aggregate it, you know do do all that work, and then right. sell off pieces of that risk to the reinsurers and with their with the reinsurers' new aggressive play to partner with startups there's a Chance? There's a world here where, in call it three, four, five years, the primary carriers wake up and see that there's all these new distribution models, and they're all now captive to reinsurance. And there's no the the, the world for the for the traditional the traditional insurance world is is being squeezed. I think it's a really interesting play. I think it's really smart. If I was um, a senior executive in one of these large reinsurance companies, I would say, yeah, this is a bit of a, a, a a once a once in a lifetime opportunity to change the dynamics of the industry and it's- it's really really interesting. The problem is and will always well i don't know if it'll always be but insurance is is long tail risk, and that takes time to play out and it, it, one of the most frustrating aspects of insurance is you can't iterate on product in every like, almost every other industry you you can put up a website really quickly, you can put up a product and see how the customers react and then pivot off of that reaction and, and kind of iterate to, to get that product market fit. Insurance, that's extraordinarily difficult because you're writing risk and you, and you need to be sure or, or you need to be comfortable on what that risk level really is. And and one of the things that's um, also important for people who are looking at the industry to understand, fr- people from the outside, is this risk isn't all the same. Um, if if you look at uh, auto insurance, for example, and, and I think this explains why a lot of the innovation is happening in P&C before it's happening in life insurance, though, though a bunch of startups are actually launching a life product. Um, If you take auto insurance, it's a couple hundred bucks a month in premium. That's what it costs the consumer. And Um, the risk, the liability is, you know, tens of thousands in general on an accident or something like that. And if you make a tweak to your underwriting model or you're marketing to a new set of customers that you weren't marketing to before, you'll know in six to nine months whether you have problems on the risk side. The claims will start coming in pretty quickly. So you can be, re- you can you can iterate in a annual basis in that world, and you, and and you can be pretty comfortable with that, yeah, you might be taking on some risk, but you'll know it quickly. You can shut it off. You can change it. You can pivot. Take life insurance though. On the other side, life insurance is arguably the most levered product in the world. I mean, way more levered than traditional debt uh you can buy a million dollars of life insurance coverage for a thousand bucks a year. And if if you are wrong on your under if you're in a life insurer and you a startup comes to you with a new way to market the product and that product is marketed to a, a bucket of people who have much higher risk levels you won't even know that that is a problem for 7 to 10 years and when it's a problem you'll have then written all these policies over that time period and the leverage inherent leverage in the system means that you could you could sink a company on, on that type of being if you're off by a lot and so that that dynamic is really important to understand which areas we'll see kind of more dramatic shifts in um, in disruption, or at least that's how the traditional insurers are thinking about it, which which it's it's super important for for people from the outside to understand who want to get into the industry.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And what do you think about, you know, totally new opportunities in insurance? Like, I know you've written about, you know, micro-insurance before. Um, you know, there's been lots of buzz around cyber insurance and, you know, basically just new products that aren't as readily available. Perhaps they should be now. Yeah, I, I'm, for innovation there? I,
1: I'm super excited by the possibility, and I think that. So my, my favorite pet project are kind of micro insurance policies. That traditional micro insurance, it, kind of like micro lending, people thinking emerging markets, but I, I actually think it's more like, or what I'm particularly a little bit more interested in is, you can call modular insurance or micro insurance for that just replace traditional products in traditional markets. So. Instead of we have we there's a company there's a startup in the fintech space called Acorns and there's one called Digit which is all about rounding up your the change on on your spend to put into a savings account or put it into a, um, a, a robo advisor account. I, I think the same thing can be done for important insurance products. Uh, you know one, ones you'll need later in life the, the disability products the long term care uh, life insurance all those things I think. You'll get much. It, the The industry could see a much higher uptick if it's not this big decision I need to make right now with thousands of dollars. That, I, but, but instead, it's like, yes, this is important, and and it's it gets increasingly important over time. So let me build up that reserve. I think those are that's really interesting. Though it'll be hard. <laughs> the the problem that I kind of hinted at before, I should have also just mentioned it is startups in the insurance space who are not themselves insurance companies have to work with insurance companies and they have to work. They have to work with the IT systems within insurance companies. And if an, you can imagine an IT system that's built to handle a thousand dollar cash payment is probably structured quite differently than one that is handling, you know, 25 cents or dollar and a half. Uh, so that's, a, that that's an interesting problem um and but I, on the uh you you mentioned cyber insurance it's one of the hottest areas that people are looking at but it has this fundamental problem that people don't it feels so hard to get comfortable with the risk on cyber so right now right. in general you a large corporation cannot get cyber insurance coverage uh for like all liability it's going to be extremely capped liability it's going to be very narrow in scope because, you know, there's. I mean, I think we all kind of think everything's somewhat hackable. And so if that's the case, then how the hell do you protect against that? How do you insure against that? It's a, it's a really difficult problem, but there's a lot of startups focused on it. So I think – and a lot of uh, insurance money is focused on it. So I think it's a really interesting space. Um,
0: and do you think innovation there will come from – you know, from within traditional carriers who think of new solutions, or from outside the industry, new entrants. I think
1: I think it's going to come from outside. I I definitely think. Well, and this goes to a little bit. I think of some of the differences between insurance, at least what I'm perceiving, insurance. This round of insurance innovation and the fintech innovation, it feels like it feels a little bit that. Carriers are really open to working with outsiders. They 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 might have they might struggle with the capabilities to work with them and to kind of. They, these are executives and startup executives that have very different life experiences and very different day to day work experiences. So there's like struggles in getting yeah. them to communicate in the same language, uh, and then and then there's a kind of institutional struggles of of getting the the institutions to work together, but they want to. I, there's a real every senior executive, insurance executive I have met or talked to expresses a true desire to 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 get better in, in these new markets and to, to try new things and um so I so I think it's actually gonna be the, the technical chops is probably gonna come from outside, but it's but it's the insurance companies that will help drive the adoption and and, and maybe try to be flexible with the um, with giving startups a chance, uh, which I think is, I think is really important. Uh, And all these, you know, I go back to a lot, this struggle of working with carriers and their kind of legacy systems. So I personally am extremely bullish on core infrastructure tech. And that's an area of insurance we do not see enough deal flow on. So I break it into, there's kind of two different ways you can look at what I want to see more of. One is Mm -hmm. policy admin systems kind of, Companies that build core systems that insurance companies need, and it's really kind of an unsexy business. Uh, it's a long sales cycle business, but these are big contracts. These are sustaining contracts, and the the uh, and when you win, this is one of my favorite examples. If you look at valuations of insurance companies versus valuations of the large core infrastructure companies that sell to insurance companies, insurance companies sell for kind of a 1.X times book value, which is mm-hmm. you know really, really, really quite typically low, versus you take uh, the number one competitor in the infrastructure space is a company called Guidewire. Guidewire trades right now at uh, something, I, this was a few months ago, I don't know exactly what it is right now, but somewhere between 5 and 10 times revenue, which is just a totally different way of valu of of doing valuation and so th- but that should be really attractive to entrepreneurs that when you hit this it and and you actually get a system that that works and is sustaining um there's real money in it, and those legacy companies the guide wires the duck creeks of the world are are not new entrants they've they've been around for twenty years their their tech is um you well, know a little a little is aging as well. They don't typically have cloud solutions. They don't typically use APIs. There's like all sorts of like very modern technology that, that is not being used. So I'm really bullish in that area. And there's a whole other area that I'm also really bullish on, which are companies that allow an insurance company, an insurance carrier, to instantly offload a chunk of the core business and outsource it. So there's an interesting company called Snapsheet. It's doing right. cleanse processing. And the what the reason why this is interesting is because it both is cheaper for the carrier and it improves the quality. And I think there's an interesting the, the industry will evolve where the carriers might take back that once their once their systems are all up and running, but that could take ten years or so. And uh so we're really interested in in, in that type of stuff too, and we see very little deal flow there, um, which is which is which is too bad.
0: That's interesting. So sounds like there's an opportunity to, you know, make big changes in experience but also in cost and that these, these infrastructural items can sort of help on both those measures. Exactly,
1: yeah. And, and you know, I think this all goes to that I don't you, – you have to – for you to kind of buy into this thesis like I do, you have to believe that the carriers will continue to have cost pressures. And my argument for why that would be the case is – all this innovation we're seeing on the distribution side and with all the all these new startups getting really well funded there's going to be an increase in pressure on actual innovation in products and in how they deliver the the customer experience and all like that and all those improvements are going to cost money to the carrier and the carriers don't have a ton of money today so a ton of kind of extra money today so that's that, I think that'll be the sustaining pressure uh to that, that will make the carriers look for new tech solutions to increase efficiency.
0: Interesting. Lastly, I wanted to ask about kind of your views on how insurance does or does not roll up into FinTech. So like obviously, in our you fintech people are looking at the industry broadly and insurance is kind of one of the buckets that people put into the FinTech category. But to what extent is that right? Or to what extent is it just a totally different beast?
1: Yeah, so it's funny, we, we actually had this internal debate within Access Strategic Ventures because we had to make a website that classifies what we look at, and right. we went kind of very much back and forth. I think this is all pretty much semantics. I think there's an argument, right. uh, if you want to just call it kind of consumer and enterprise, if you just split the entire world into those two buckets, then, then okay, so then with, you, you, the, the problem with make it so tight is you have fintech and insurance solutions that uh some are sold to to enterprise, some are sold to, to consumers. So I like I personally think about the world that they're cousins. Okay. In that and so that they're not fintech is is separate and I think they're separate because um the, the players are all different. Yes there's they're both regulated industries, but the regulations are totally different. Uh, yes, they both involve money, but what the money is doing is 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 quite different. Consumers think about think about them very differently. They're they're sold depending on the the thing they're sold quite differently. Um, but the target the, the the targets are all the same. There's small business loans and there's small business insurance, obviously, and so the you get you get that all over the place. Um, but they're different enough. That any solution you're selling into the insurance side is not you can't you kind of can't repackage that and sell that into the fintech side and and, and vice versa. Um, right. But they share. But the reason I think they're kind of cousins and related is because they share some of the same problems. They, they share these. The institutions are all massive. The institutions uh, all are doing deep thinking on risk. Uh, they they actually they're different regulations, but they all kind of have. Compliance problems that they're trying to deal with. So we think of them very differently. And then, and then within that, I don't, I really don't. I, th- I think of insurance as having its own breakups, but within it, I mean, um, commercial insurance is different than personal line. Uh, the the solutions are different. The problems are different. The Types of companies that's going to be successful in one are are going to be different than the other, I, and and you get a lot of these splits where there's a there's a little bit of a debate going on on what's the future of the finan- of the advisor of the of the insurance agent and mm-hmm. uh, in general we're I'm of the belief that kind of the insurance agent will get minimized on small dollar risk but well there's always going to be a, a need on the larger stuff the large commercial or the really expensive personal line stuff. And so.
0: Right.
1: So in other words, it's all, not really
0: altogether different from the wealth management debate over, you know, over advisors in that field.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. In that case, there it's 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 a similar debate. Yeah. Uh, but then, and then, as I said, in the very beginning of this call was healthcare is totally different, yet that's a huge right. area of insurance and they have very little over up I and mean, the investors are almost totally different. The, the insurance company. You very rarely in the U.S. do you get an insurance company who's both a health insurer and a PNC right. insurer. Um, but also Ooh, yeah. rarely do you get someone who's a life insurer and a PNC insurer. So the the the, the, the market is. Um, <laughs> so the answer, I think, is uh, is it, more helpful to think of them as different than it is helpful to think of them as the same. But they're obviously not unrelated.
0: Right. But then. As a sort of a follow-up question, though, to the extent – even if the investors themselves are different individuals, maybe, to the extent that the growth in fintech sort of catalyzed the growth of insurtech and you know some of the health investments did precede some of the P&C or life investments, do you think regulatory-related slowdowns in either fintech or in health insurance affect you know, the broader insurance investment space? Or is is there really enough momentum there that you expect investment trends to keep up regardless of yeah, life, I, you know, broader fintech?
1: I think it's a good way of, of. I think it's a good question because it kind of cuts to the heart of it. Are 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 they similar, uh, and that that the one trend will impact the other. On the health side, I think it's totally separate. Health health insurance versus PNC because Obamacare was such an important driver of change in the health insurance industry, and did it just, it just didn't affect uh, didn't affect the C insurers at all. And right. with the new administration, there's bound to be changes on the healthcare side. There's a huge amount of discussion in investment communities about what, what types of deals could you bet on now uh, versus, you know, a few weeks ago be- because with that much uncertainty and the regulation being so directly tied to how the, industry works, it's it's hard to make a play. Um or you just gotta think of startups a little bit differently in the space and you gotta kind of understand are they how, how subject to those regulations are they and, and, and depending on which way it goes, how does it affect them and it it adds a whole new layer. That conversation on that at least on regarding the ACA is not happening on the insurance side. On the insurance side there's a whole bunch of other questions that on different regulations, um but but there's no I don't know the probability that the they move in lockstep. I, I think these are independent questions that will affect the industries independently. Um, and I think you'll see that, like, the, the um, depending on which way the regulation goes, regulations move over the next X number of years. It, it'll affect the particular industry vertical, but I don't know why it would bleed over to the others. So I, I, that's why I more case for why they're kind of it should think about them independently.
0: Interesting. Well, I guess then there's a final question that's sort of related. Do you, uh, you know, 2017, uh, think a year out, do you think the year end insure tech investment numbers in 2017 exceed 2016? Hmm. Stuff.
1: I uh, think this is a sustaining trend. I, I don't think. I think there, there's there's a lot of smart money and smart entrepreneurs looking at the space, and I don't think that's going to go away. But there's this big – whole all the companies that were seed deals, seed and kind of pre-A deals in late 15 and all of 16 – will need to raise capital in 2017 or some large chunk of them will need to raise capital in 2017. And what's going to be really interesting to see is entrepreneurs, I think there's not enough um, respect given to this point, which is raising on, on aspiration, doing a round when you haven't launched is a very different experience to trying to raise a round once you've launched. Because before you've launched, you can have a great story. It all makes sense. Your growth numbers are going to be, you know, 20, 25% month on month. After you launch, it, it becomes much harder for any investor to credibly believe that story when you're currently growing 5% month on month. And so, okay, well, we'll take you from that to 20, you know, and, and it, it all of a sudden, the the, the Post-launch, you are anchored in reality in a way you're not pre-launch. And so that's been the case in all of 16, that there are tons of money poured in, all effectively pre-launched to pre-launch companies. Now, they have a lot of money, so maybe maybe they can wait this out. Right? Maybe they don't actually need to raise in 2017, but a decent chunk will need to raise in 2017. And if those, if their launch numbers are consistently fine but not awesome, uh, I think it could, could give the industry a little bit of pause, but I think in the long uh, long term, I'm super bullish on on investment dollars and insurance. I, I just don't think this is going away. I think this is this is now now that VCs understand the industry or in the or at least they're now that they they're really deep in the learning curve. They're going to always keep their eye on it. They're going to understand it a lot more, and there's going to be more deal flow. And so I so I kind of dodged the question a little bit. I don't. Really, no. I, I my guess is it'll be maybe a little bit less, uh, but I don't know. But really, long term, I I think this is uh, a, a, an ongoing trend.
0: I think that's more than a fair answer. I guess we'll have to wait and see for next year. But uh, all right, I guess that's all we have time for. Drew, thanks so much for your time today. This is great. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Take care.